Well, it's good to be back with you all this morning after some time off and then preaching at Jonesboro last week. Uh, I've been told that Dan preaches a little bit shorter than I do. Um, I don't know that they were quite ready for the length of the message last week, but uh, it's good to be back home where you all are ready for long sermons, right? I am happy to be back. Uh, It was really fun to be over in Sunday school this morning and uh, sharing that it was my wife's birthday today. Uh, I don't remember how old she is, but it's another birthday. I got to tell them all that uh, I got her a Sawzall, uh, which I'm told is something that uh, is abnormal for a woman to want. Uh, And and David, uh, he sort of looked at me and said, you're implying that only rednecks have Sawzalls. And I said, you know what? I think the Venn diagram for rednecks and people that own Sawzalls, it's probably just a circle. Uh, It's probably just the same group of people. And it was a whole lot of fun to just read the Bible together and to talk about last week's message. And then even before that, David and I had some time together in my office to talk about Sunday school and then to discuss Dale Ward's situation. And so I wanted to take some time here before I actually get to introducing and preaching my sermon uh, to just pray briefly for Dale. I, don't, I, I left earlier and I didn't know if everybody had the update that uh, he is at UVA, he is on a ventilator, he is stable, and he is very sick. And so I want to pray for him right now, uh, and then we'll sort of dive into 1 Kings and chapter 16. So if you bow your heads together with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Dale. We thank you that life and death are in your hands. That breath comes into no one's lungs, nor departs from anyone's lungs, apart from your sovereign will. Indeed, you give everyone and everything life and breath and everything. Thank you that the world is not just a machine that is wound up, natural processes that just happen. No, Lord, we recognize that you are the one who holds everything together, who guides all things. Indeed, Lord, you are in control. You are sovereign. So we pray that you Help us to put our trust and our hope in you. Because not only are you in control, not only are you all-powerful, you are all good. And so we ask in this hour of distress for Dale that you would be good to him. We are bold enough to ask that you might heal him. We know, yes, that you will one day raise him up from the grave. But Lord, we ask now that you would delay his going to the grave and that you would rise him up out of that hospital bed and give him and us some more years together. We thank you for his faith and for his friendship. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 16, 1 Kings chapter 16, we're going to settle down in verses 29 through the first verse of chapter 17, but I'm going to read here, I'm going to back all the way up to verse 21, verse 21. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. 
Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ganath, to make him king. And half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ganath. So Tibni died. And Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel. And he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Terzah. Then he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. And he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri that he did and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. And Ahab his son reigned in his place. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal, and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which was spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. These are dark days. And yet we only know that because we are hearing about them from the perspective of the author of Kings. The people have since gone into exile and now they are reading about the experience of their forefathers. And so the author of Kings is giving us a sampling of Israel's kings, and a sample of their history in order to, to teach the people in exile why they are there, what happened. You imagine not being on this side of the exile or hearing the author's understanding of events and just put yourself in Israel at the time. You could read these events not as evil or wicked, but as actually pretty good. I mean, Omri finally got to the throne and you didn't run through king after king after king. Stability has come. Omri reigns for 12 years. 
Indeed, his name was renowned. You can see it in the Louvre in Paris on the mesh of steel. Israel was actually called the House of Omri for 150 years after his death. Sure, the biblical author doesn't think much of him. He evaluates him from a theological perspective and gives him eight verses. Tells you he did evil. But from a worldly perspective, Omri was a big deal. Brought in stability, 12-year reign. And then his son, Ahab, just like his father, leaves a dent in the world. He brings peaceful foreign relations by marrying the woman Jezebel. He builds diversity and inclusion into Israel by erecting a house to Baal. And indeed, he even shores up their borders by fortifying the once fallen city of Jericho. I mean, from a political perspective at the time, things look pretty good. And who can argue with prosperity? But on this side of the exile, when we read this text, we recognize that apparent success is a poor index for faithfulness. Israel seems to be flourishing, but things are not always what they seem. That's our main idea this morning. Things are not always what they seem. Outline is there before you. We are going to spend very little time on Elijah's arrival, but I do think it belongs with these verses. And we'll talk much more about Elijah in coming weeks. For the most part, we are going to spend our time in these opening verses, or I guess these ending verses of chapter 16, and really Ahab's evil, which can be summarized with three names, Jezebel, Baal, and Jericho. But before we go there, we're going to talk more about him and his father Omri. And so with that as a map for our time together, I'm going to pray once more, and then we'll start to work through the text. Father, What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been a minute since we've been in Kings, so let's find ourselves in the story. Remember, the book opens with great King David, sick and frail and dying. He can't even keep warm. Remember, they have a beauty contest and they try to bring in the girl Abishag to you know, get his blood going a little bit. And not even that works. And eventually David dies. And really you have there in seed form the big message of the book of Kings. First and second Kings go together, book of Kings. Which is this, the glory of the kingdom is fading. Death and destruction are coming to God's people. David passes away and his son Solomon ascends to the throne. As you know, there was some drama there, but eventually Solomon gets to the throne and he seems at first as if he is going to be even better than his father David. He asks God for a listening heart so that he might govern the people with excellence and govern the people with excellence he does. 
he ushers in an unprecedented era of wealth. He builds to God the glorious temple. It's that prayer that fills up chapter 8. It's extravagant. There's a, a party. The whole temple court is filled with barbecuing animals and singing and dancing and eating. It, it is joyful. I actually think the early part of Solomon's reign is summed up really well how good things are in Israel. Verse 20 of chapter 4 says this, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. All the blessings of God which he promised to them in the covenant, well, they're coming true under Solomon's reign. But then, and there were seeds planted by the author, we recognize that Solomon's heart was not true to the Lord his God. He fell prey to the temptations of gold, guns, and girls. He gathered to himself in direct defiance of Deuteronomy 17, which tells kings how they are to live. He gathers to himself excessive gold, extravagant war horses, and many, many exotic wives. His heart went away from the Lord into idols. And this brought God's judgment onto the united monarchy. Israel and Judah had been one, the people of Israel. But Solomon's sin brings about a fracturing in Israel. So that 10 tribes, 11 tribes-ish, I don't remember, are taken to the north to become the northern kingdom. And there's one tribe pre preserved for David, Judah. So you have the northern kingdom called Israel in the north and the southern kingdom called Judah in the south. That's where Jerusalem is. And when this division takes place, one of the things we see is that the northern kingdom becomes a counterfeit of the southern, and it happens right away. True worship happens at the temple in Jerusalem. God has decided to put his name there. That is where he has said his people will worship him, in the temple in Jerusalem. When Jeroboam takes some of the people out from under the reign of Rehoboam and into the north, he immediately recognizes this as a problem. He thinks to himself, if my people continually have to go to Jerusalem to worship their God, well, they're going to throw me out eventually. I'm going to end up dead. And so, here's what I'll do. I'll create my own version of Judaism. And so he initiates the false worship that marks the northern kingdom throughout its existence. He takes a page out of Aaron's book and does even better. He creates not one, but two golden calves for the people to worship. He sets one in Bethel and the other at Dan for convenience. 
He even says, Behold your gods who brought you out of Egypt. He goes on to institute feasts and priests, all according to his own imagination. And this false worship, this idolatry, marks the northern kingdom not hard to see why the author of Kings, when he wants to show us that a, a king is evil, that he says he walked in the way of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was an evil man and set up a counterfeit kingdom. And the north becomes a sort of parody of the south. And that theme is actually really strengthened when we take a deeper look at the text here. You see, not only is it a counterfeit kingdom, but Omri, I brought him up again for a reason, is a counterfeit David. And Ahab is a counterfeit Solomon. Let's, let me try to show you this in the text a little bit as we look underneath of it. This is what one commentator says. Virtually everything that is said about Omri has some parallel in the life of David. Like David, he is an army commander who fights Philistines. You see that in verse 15 of chapter 16. David gains a reputation as a warrior by killing Goliath and leading Israel in a series of wars against the Philistines. While Omri commands the troops during the Israelite siege of the Philistine city of Gibbethon, verse 17 of chapter 16. Like David, Omri succeeds a suicidal king. Saul committed suicide and Zimri commits suicide. That's verse 18 of chapter 16. And like David, he becomes king only after a civil war. Like David, he divides his reign between two capitals. Omri buys the hill of Shemar, just as David purchases the threshing floor of Aranah for the temple. Now, if Omri is a counterfeit, idolatrous David, then it follows that Ahab is a counterfeit Solomon. Like Solomon, he marries a foreign woman. Solomon marries an Egyptian. Ahab weds Jezebel. Like Solomon, Ahab is a temple builder, though it is not a temple for Yahweh that he builds, but one for Baal. It is with Ahab, this counterfeit Solomon, that the northern kingdom's apostasy is made most apparent and revealed to be most ugly. From a worldly perspective, things seemed to be pretty good when you looked at the reigns of Omri and Ahab. But from the heavenly perspective of the author, things couldn't have been worse. Brothers and sisters, we must be on guard against our own penchant for evaluating our circumstances through worldly lenses instead of biblical ones. We need to guard ourselves against 
looking at that which is apparently successful and then deeming it a good thing. Oftentimes, that which is most successful can also be that which is most evil. Friends, guard yourself from evaluating things according to the values of the world. Guard yourself against following wicked and evil men like Ahab. Be willing to stand against both that which is obviously evil and that evil which presents itself to you as a good. Remember, Satan often looks like an angel of light. Ahab is evil. We see this in verses 29 and 30. I don't know if you noticed when I was reading. You see that he is a son of Omri thrice over. So the Hebrew author, he's putting an emphasis there. They didn't have bold or italics or underlined, so they repeat things. So son of Omri began to reign over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years, and Ahab, the son of Omri, there it is three times, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. Three times he's telling us he's the son of Omri. What is he saying? Like father, like son. Omri is bringing into the kingdom an unprecedented evil. Look at verse 33. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. There are degrees of sin. Yes, all sin separates us from God, but not all sin is equally heinous. It's an important category to have in your thinking. For example, heart murder is not as significant as actual murder. When I say heart murder, I mean you get angry with your brother and your heart, as Jesus says in Matthew 5. Speeding on 151 is not as significant as stealing. And listen to what the author is telling us here. Jeroboam's sins... And Omri's sins are not as significant as Ahab's sins. He's outsinned them both. Loved what one commentator said. Jeroboam's state cult is like drinking polluted water. Ahab's imported paganism is like sucking sewage. Neither is good. But one is worse than the other. Ahab is a wicked king. And he marries himself to Jezebel. It doesn't seem wicked on the face of it. Things are probably going pretty well. And so he's going to shore up foreign relations by marrying himself to this foreign woman, Jezebel. Look with me at verse 31. 
And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for himself Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Again, from a worldly perspective, this is just wise politicking. Make allies with those who might attack you. He's bringing prosperity and peace. Who can argue with peace and prosperity? He's doing a good job. But things are not always what they seem. From a theological perspective, his actions are ruinous. Marrying himself to a foreign wife is a repeat of Solomon's foolishness. The Bible is clear on this in Israel, and it's clear to us as Christians in the New Testament that those who follow the Lord our God should not marry themselves to those who do not. It is the height of folly to intentionally marry a non-Christian. Some of you are in that situation, and you should remain there as faithfully as you can. But it's not something to be pursued. Who you marry is going to impact how you worship. Paul is clear that darkness and light have nothing in common. And so those who belong to God ought not yoke themselves together with those who belong to the world. And yet this is exactly what Ahab does. He says, you know what, it doesn't, it's not really that big of a deal, right? It's, it's more important for me to marry somebody I'm compatible with and that I get along with than it is to marry somebody who shares my faith. In fact, marrying Jezebel, it's really gonna, it's made me a better man, right? It's opened, it's opened new horizons to me. I've heard, heard about this new God, they all, it's really good. It's not, it's not a big deal. You should just marry who you have that spark with. That's his argument, maybe. But it is a big deal. Despite, I I do love, the author says, he married her at the beginning of verse 31 as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. Hey, marrying Jezebel, worshiping Baal, not a big deal. Not big deal. Do you guys remember way back in the year 2020 in, in March and April trying to go to the stores? What did you see when you went there? Typically, you, you would observe what has been called panic buying. And for the uninitiated, panic buying is just what it sounds like. Uh, people are in a panic and they are buying everything. Some of you still have hundreds of rolls of toilet paper stowed away somewhere. Similar thing happens, the meteorologist comes on the TV and says, there is a significant snow coming. And what does everybody do? They run to the store and they get milk, bread, and eggs, as if that's all you need to endure even the worst of situations. By all the milk, bread, and eggs, shelves are empty. And then there are, there are others of you, though, who are doomsday preppers, and so you just sort of smile at these situations, like, yeah, my bunker's ready to go, and been eating MREs for the past decade, no big deal. But the reality is, you've made preparations 
for the announcement or the expectation of some dangerous event. It is surprising to me that when the meteorologist says a snow is coming, we hurry up, we go to the store, we get ready. Prepare ourselves. Yet when God warns us against sin, we put our hands in our pockets and stroll in the ways of Jeroboam, whistling happily. We think of sin, no big deal. Not that significant. But friends, the judgment of God is far worse than any illness or any snowstorm. Sinning is the most deadly behavior that you can participate in. It's the most dangerous thing to your eternal well-being. We ought not treat it lightly. And it may look as if there are plenty of people committing all kinds of wickedness in the world and getting away with it. All kinds of Ahabs who are flourishing and having success. And you might think, as the psalmist does in Psalm 73, Lord, why do I follow you? Why don't I go the way that they go? They're, they're fat and happy. But the reality is, no one gets away with sinning against a holy God. Don't be fooled. Sin must be taken seriously. Do you, do you actually believe that sin is more dangerous to you than physical suffering? It is. Do you live like that? We should fear sinning against God more than we fear persecution. More than we fear coming down with a terrible illness. More than we fear getting Alzheimer's and being holed up in a nursing home while somebody has to change our bedpan. We should fear sin. Do you fear sin? Or do you treat it as something light? Friends, take sin seriously. Put it to death. Ahab does not take sin seriously whatsoever, and so he takes to himself a foreign wife against the commands of God. And he gives himself to her foreign God, they all. Verse 32 again, and back up a little bit. Ahab went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. I mean, he, Ahab knows exactly what he's doing. This isn't a slip-up. This is intentional sin. Jezebel's mother, mother, Jezebel's father's name is Ethbaal, which means Baal exists, or Baal be with him. In Jezebel's name, it means something like, where is the prince? And you can hear part of uh, the Baal worship in her name. Zebal just, just means prince. And so sometimes Baal in the Bible, if you've read, you've come across Baal Zebul or Baal Zebub. 
And what the Bible authors do, which is, this is really fun, is they'll manipulate the, the words, the name, so that the, instead of saying Baal is prince, like the word Baalzebul, it'll become Lord of the Flies or Baal of the Flies. And Jezebel's name works this way too. It's more fun. Uh, the writer actually manipulates the vowels when he writes her name so that it suggests the Hebrew word for dung. This, he's giving you, he's mocking both Baal, this false god, and he's mocking Jezebel who follows him. This is really fun, isn't it? And he's also hinting at where Jezebel's life is leading. Her body will lie in the street. Her blood will be licked up by dogs. She will be there as dung. Again, this allusion to the house of Jeroboam in chapter 14. Remember, the prophecy comes against them. We're told that his house stinks, that God's judgment will come on them, that they will be burned up like dung. You have an evaluation of Baal and Jezebel. And yet, from a worldly perspective, we could say Ahab is just bringing in some culture to the northern kingdom. After all, what's true for Israelites is true for Israelites, and what's true for Baal worshippers is true for Baal worshippers, and what's true for Moloch worshippers is true for Moloch worshippers. And so they can all coexist in Israel. It's good for them to have a, a strong, pluralistic society. And who's really to say what's true or what's false or what's good or what's evil? After all, they're prospering. Lots of people are there. And yet, from a heavenly perspective, Ahab is doing nothing more than filling Israel with dung. Indeed, Jezebel is not just a normal Baal follower. You see, as we travel through Kings, she butchers the prophets of God. She puts fear even into Elijah's heart. She is a wicked woman. And Ahab is a wicked king. And Baal, he's a storm god. This is important for later. But he's a Canaanite storm god. And so the, the idea is that he brings rain and he brings fertility both to the land and to the people. And so one of the ways you worship Baal is you hook up with temple prostitutes and then pray to him and offer sacrifices and all these things. And they bring about fertility in the people and the land. That's the idea. He brings rain. This is what Ahab is interjecting into Israel in place of Yahweh. Ahab thinks it is a light thing to sin. Seems as if he is getting away with his evil. But things are not always what they seem. God sees and God knows. Ahab's evil does not stop with the erection of Baal's temple. It continues with the rebuilding of Jericho. Look at verse 34. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho 
He laid its foundation at the cost of Abraham, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. From a worldly perspective, this is a great move. Jericho's a border town. They have to worry about Judah in the south. Refortifying it is a great idea. It is about security and safety. From a worldly perspective, this is a great move. But things are not always what they seem. From a heavenly perspective, this is high-handed sin. This is unbelievable, careless defiance against God. Hiel rebuilds Jericho in opposition to the word of the Lord. Flashback with me to Joshua chapter 6. Israel has just entered the land. There by Jericho, the angel of the Lord appears to Joshua with his sword drawn. Joshua says, are you for us or them? And he says, I'm for the Lord. And then in verse 2 of chapter 6, the Lord speaks to Joshua. This is what he says. See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city and all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. This is an unorthodox sort of plan that the Lord lays out before Joshua. And we all know this story because we all know how the plan goes, right? They march around the city, they do what the Lord has said, six days, seventh day, they march around the city, hear the trumpets blaring, and then the people roar at the walls with a great Shout, and as the children's song says, and the walls came tumbling down. The people take Jericho, and they set the whole city to destruction, with the exception of Rahab and her family. They burn the city with fire. Lord's judgment has fallen. And then with smoke and fire filling the air, Joshua turns and says to the people, verse 26 of Joshua 6, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city of Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Do you see what is happening when they rebuild Jericho? It's the first city taken in the conquest. 
and now they're building it back up again. This is a reversal of the conquest. It is a rejection of God and his promised blessings and an embrace of the covenant curses. The people were supposed to take the land from the Canaanites and live as God's holy, distinct people, light in the darkness. And instead, the darkness has taken them. They have become people of the land. They themselves have become Canaanites. Be warned, Christian, lest you walk in the ways of Jeroboam, Omri, Ahab, and Israel. Be alert, lest the riptide of culture suck you into the sea of destruction and rebellion. Brothers and sisters, we must never compromise or make peace with sin and wickedness. We must never wink at sin. We must never apologize for gagging at what the Bible says ought to make us sick. We should look at this passage and we should see the sinfulness of sin. We should hate sin as much as the Lord Jesus Christ hates sin. How we can walk away from passages like this, walk away from our Bible, walk away from the cross and seeing the result of sin and think that it is a light thing, that it's no big deal to think that, well, we we can make peace with it. We can change little parts of what the Bible teaches so that we might be more evangelistic or winsome. Yeah, I'll affirm your commitment to sexual promiscuity. Jesus loves you. Yeah, I'll I'll use those preferred pronouns and lie about how God has made you because Jesus loves you. Probably looked very loving of Ahab to invite all sorts of false gods into Israel. He was leading with love. Friends, some love is hate. Love that is defined by the world instead of by God in his word is hate. When you compromise God's word in an effort to be quote-unquote loving, you are being hateful. You should hate sin. God hates it. Friends, we we live in a culture that is permeated with sin. It can, can feel as if we are living under the rule of Satan himself. We can maybe even see ourselves asking the question of those those under Ahab's rule asked, God, can, it, can evil grow anymore? Can it get darker? The answer is it always can. Evil has a way of multiplying exponentially. Nevertheless, 
our response to evil cannot be compromise, it cannot be despair, it cannot be surrender. Rather, we must take heart, build, and fight. We must devote ourselves to the word of God and prayer and evangelism and a cheerful defiance to a convictional kindness that doesn't shrink back from telling the truth to people. Not because we hate them, but because we love them the way that Jesus tells us to love them. We must stand guard against the flaming darts loosed by the evil one so that we might catch them upon the shield of faith. We must be constantly outfitted in the full armor of God if we are to endure faithfully to the end. We must resolve to be distinct from the world, to live as candles flickering beneath the weight of this present darkness. Friends, stand fast. Do not capitulate. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You may suffer for faithfulness to Christ. But do not fear those who can do harm to the body and then after that do nothing. Fear the one who can cast body and soul into hell. Endure. See the sinfulness of sin. Be disgusted by it so you are not tempted to shake hands with it. Christian, we do not negotiate with sinfulness. We believe it is better to suffer than to sin. Ahab thinks it is a light thing to sin. And for everybody living with him at the time, it appeared that way. It appeared that he would be getting away with it. He was happy to marry the harlot Jezebel to build a false temple to the false god Baal and to rebuild the Canaanite city of Jericho. He, he was happy to assimilate all Israel to the way of the Canaanites that they were supposed to destroy and displace. And it seemed as if he would get away with it. But God had a man. Elijah shows up. Verse 1, chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. God is not absent, he is not out of control, and he has his man ready to bring his word of judgment to Ahab. Elijah shows up and he wants to remind this king that there are covenant curses, that there are covenant blessings, and that there is a God who lives and keeps them both. We always like to say God keeps his promises but it is equally true that God keeps his curses. His curse is the way that he carries out his good and right judgment. In fact, he told Israel that if they would turn away from him, that he would turn off the water of the land. 
that he would withhold the dew. That's exactly what he does. God's judgment always comes. It always comes. We see it in the death of Hiel's children as he sets up Jericho. God keeps his curses. And we'll see it as drought comes to the land. God's using his judgment both to curse sin as it deserves and also to draw his people to repentance that they might return to him. For it is not Baal who controls the winds and the rains, but the Lord God. It is incredible in this passage. We have a picture for us of our own commitment to rebel against God apart from Christ. Ahab sanctions the rebuilding of Jericho and Hiel rebuilds Jericho. Why? They are both committed to defying the word of God. And that is every man, woman, and child apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Dead in our sins, defiant against God, resolved to live according to our own hearts instead of His word. They're so committed to evil. As I thought about this, I thought how how strange and beautiful it is when we get to the New Testament. Wicked people defy God's word and are willing to give up their children to rebel against Him. And here is God, loving rebel sinners. He forgives, adopts, redeems them. He builds rebel sinners into his holy temple at the expense of his son. A curse that should fall on you and me, Christian, falls on the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might live with God forever, so that we might enjoy eternal life with one another forever, so that our destiny is not hell and wrath for all eternity, but heaven and happily ever after. Paul says it in Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's glorious. Everything seemed dark, in Israel. But God was there. He had a man and a word. His judgment would come. And indeed, his redemption comes to his saints. God's man, Jesus Christ, showed up the first time to bear God's purse for his people, curse for his people, not a purse. And he will come again to bring the curse of his wrath upon the sons of disobedience. Friends, it may seem as if the wicked are getting away with it, away with their high-handed rebellion against God. But things are not always what they seem. 
Jesus will lock the unrepentant up in hell's dungeon forever. Justice will come. And that should encourage you, Christian. No injustice is final. God is going to right every wrong. Indeed, not only is he going to judge the wicked, he is going to vindicate his people, his righteous ones, who are righteous not in and of themselves, but through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, as we live in a wicked and crooked generations, we can take heart and shine as stars in the sky. We can be bold. We can love others enough to tell them the truth. We can be willing to suffer rather than sin. We can walk by faith all the way through death and into the celestial city. We can endure because we know that God's man will come. We know that he has come and will come again. We know that God's words don't fail. And indeed, the Lord Jesus has said to us, Revelation 21, verse 6, it is is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers, overcomes, endures, the one who is faithful to the end, to the one who conquers, he will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Things are not always what they seem. God's judgment will come to the wicked and his vindication will come to the righteous, those who have been saved by grace through faith. It may look like evil is winning. It may look like Satan is seated on his throne unopposed and unthreatened, but Satan is a prince on a leash. He is a devil with a curfew and the clock is coming ever nearer to midnight. Days are dark, but God has a man. Jesus will finish what he started. He will end evil. And he will save his people. Indeed, the bone and the blood of the snake are dried upon his heel. And soon, the smoke of that great serpent's corpse will paint the skies of the new heavens and the new earth as God's people let out a great hallelujah. Jesus is coming. So we can walk by faith. We can overcome. Believer, the days are dark indeed. But in Christ, you can endure. Conquer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We recognize all of us are sinners. All of us deserve your wrath. All of us, 
apart from your saving mercy and love, are no better than Ahab or Omri or Jeroboam. We, at one point, hated you. We were in the dark. We were sons of disobedience, following our passions and the prince of the power of the air. But you loved us with a great love, gave to us your Holy Spirit, and have made us alive in Christ Jesus. We give you praise. You've seated us with him in heavenly places. You have ordained good works that we ought to walk in them. And so we pray that you would give us the strength to endure and to conquer and to follow Jesus. Into the grave, yes. And also into the resurrection that is to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.